Liturgy is repetitive. So the way that we order our service, the things that we say to one another, back and forth, these things are very purposeful. Every week as you attend Gospel Life Church, you'll hear someone say, for instance, this is the word of the Lord, and we all respond, thanks be to God, right? This is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. We echo this truth and this thankfulness for his word back and forth to one another throughout the week. The purpose of liturgy like this is to, to proclaim the gospel, the good news about Jesus, repeatedly to our hearts. It's this thing that we do here at Gospel Life called gospel repetition. Well, there is a liturgy of God's people on Easter Sunday in which one of us proclaims, He is risen. And, and we all say together, as Pete was about to, <laughs> before I cut him off, he is risen indeed. And so we're going to do that now together, and, and we're doing it because later we'll also uh, conclude our sermon this way as well. Gospel Life Church, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful that this good news that we read about this morning, this isn't something that we read once. That saves us in this moment in time, but then we move beyond and become some kind of a story that we know so well that we don't need to return to, but instead is the wellspring of life for us. We're grateful, Lord, that you've given us this gospel that not only saves but sanctifies. Put it on our, on our lips this morning. Put it in our ears. Spirit of God, as we look into your word, help us to proclaim this well to one another this Easter Sunday, in Jesus' name, amen. So we've talked the last uh, few weeks about how this time during Holy Week in particular was going to be a theme for us at Gospel Life Church in which we looked back at this Genesis series that we've been preaching through week by week, chapter by chapter, narrative by narrative through the book of Genesis, and that as we do that, we actually end up seeing how those Gen Genesis narratives point us forward to Holy Week. They point us forward to these gospel events, right? Because that's what, that's what the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John show us. The historical events of the gospel. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But this morning we begin by thinking back to what we just read two Sundays ago in Genesis 35. A fitting conclusion to where we were in Genesis before we entered into Holy Week in which Rachel dies giving birth in Ephrath. And the author goes to great pains to make sure we understand that this place, Ephrath, where Rachel dies, is actually the city of Bethlehem. As we move through Genesis, we see, right, from the very beginning, we see more and more and more of this curse of death that has become reality because of sin entering the world. In Bethlehem, in Genesis 35, we have a birth leading to death. And a reminder of Genesis 3, right? God says to Jacob and, and Rachel on the one hand, he says, be fruitful and multiply. And that reminds us of Genesis 1. Reminds us of creation. It reminds us that he made all things good. And then as they attempt to be fruitful and multiply, Rachel dies in labor, reminding us of Genesis 3. A birth of a son in Bethlehem that leads to death. But here in the gospel accounts of the New Testament, here in Matthew where we've been for the past Three times together, you find a birth of a son in Bethlehem that would lead to life. 
that actually undoes the death that we find in Genesis 35. How? Well, if you haven't already, turn with me to Matthew 28. Here we find the most important events in all of human history. Even for those of his followers who listened actively to his teaching, even for those who paid close attention from the very beginning uh, to their time with Jesus, those who remembered the scriptures, there was confusion in the events of Good Friday. This long-awaited king that has been promised since Genesis 3 has now arrived, first being embraced as king by those who fundamentally misunderstand his kingship. That's what we talked about last week on Palm Sunday. And then being mocked and rejected as king as he goes to the cross as we saw on Good Friday together. And now Matthew turns his attention to Sunday and as we do that we find four parts of this narrative they are going to help us make sense of the resurrection of Jesus and help us make sense of like why does this matter? Why is this so central to Christian teaching? The cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Why do Christians make such a big deal about this moment in history? So this morning we'll see the reason the women went to the tomb on Easter Sunday. The reality then of what they find when they arrive. The revelation that the angel gives them is an explanation to that. And then the resurrection appearances of Jesus. So the reason, the reality, the revelation, the resurrection. I've been pretty eager to open this text with you for over a year now. Okay, so you'll see in your, in your bulletins there's a text, Luke 24. And I had considered preaching that this year. But last year, in light of Genesis, because we had just began Genesis... I wanted to preach through these sections of Matthew's gospel because here in Matthew's gospel we have Matthew authoring this book to Jewish believers in order to demonstrate that this Jesus actually is king. He actually is this king who they've been waiting for, this long-awaited Messiah. But last year, as we all know, we were limited to about 15 minutes on Zoom. I felt in my spirit like that is just not enough For us to do justice for this theme that we've been longing for. And now I'm so thankful this Easter Sunday that we're gathered together here with the word open in front of us. That we might see the means by which we absolutely have a secure hope. Even in the midst of a proclamation of judgment in Genesis 3. We have a secure hope in the promise that God gives right on the heels of that judgment. And to understand that let's look first to the reason these women went to the tomb. Verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. So this is a straightforward verse. Sort of a natural transition from making connections from a former narrative to this new narrative. And we'll see where the connection is made. But this verse actually, despite its straightforwardness, tells us a lot about the motives of the women, disciples. On the morning of Easter Sunday. Jesus was buried on Friday. So let's look quickly back. At the burial account according to Matthew. So just turn back one chapter earlier. Matthew 27 starting in verse 57. He writes. When it was evening. There came a rich man from Arimathea. Named Joseph. Who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it be given to him. 
And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled the great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Look at verse 61. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. So here on Good Friday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary watch. They watch in the midst of their grief as Jesus is placed in the tomb. And the stone rolls in front of it, and with it, this, this great hope and anticipation that they had. Right? And here we see now at dawn on Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, the same women who watched as they buried Jesus and placed the stone in front. They, the verse tells us they went to look at the tomb. Now the purpose of this visit, according to Mark's account, was to anoint Jesus' body with spices to continue... To, honor him and mourn him in this way. There's clearly not any expectation on the part of his disciples at this point that Jesus is somehow alive. Their expectation in going to the gravesite is the expectation of every person in all of human history in going to a gravesite. That the loved one that they're visiting is still in the grave. So the reason they went to the tomb It can be summed up in two words. Common expectation. These women have just a common expectation in visiting Jesus' tomb that Sunday morning. They expect to find a body to anoint and to mourn. They couldn't visit on Saturday because it was the Sabbath, and so the text tells us they waited until after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, that is Sunday morning. In addition to that, according to Matthew's testimony, the women, they could have expected to find guards who were positioned there out of an understandable fear from both Roman authorities and the Jewish Sanhedrin that someone might try to steal the body and claim some kind of resurrection. And so if you remember, in the midst of, we said, we said at Palm Sunday, This messianic expectation of Israel in the first century is at a fever pitch. It's extremely high. There's this belief that the Messiah is on his way. So in the midst of that fever pitch of messianic expectation, as we've been talking about, what does everyone, according to Matthew in chapter 27, from the Jewish religious leaders to Pontius Pilate, know will be the linchpin of putting putting down some kind of a revolt or revolution, riots or upheaval, claiming some kind of a rumor that Jesus rose from the dead. Producing the body. Here's your Messiah. He's dead. He's not raised. So it's understandable during this time, and given everything that's happened up to this point, that the tomb would be guarded by Roman soldiers, and these soldiers would likely have also expected, as was custom, for women mourners to visit the body Soon after its burial. So that's the reason they went to the tomb. Common expectation. It's the common expectation of finding Jesus still in the tomb, dead, anointing his body, honoring him in this kind of common way. But here we see the reality of the tomb. The reality of what they find when they get there. The author backs up a bit to explain what happened. We don't know. It doesn't seem as though the women uh, are witness to this event. But let's read. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. 
And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. The reality of the tomb on Easter morning was that it was and still is completely empty. Summed up in two words. They came for common expectation. But what they find is the tomb completely empty. Okay? We see this divine intervention in which either after an earthquake or because using this earthquake to do this, an angel of the Lord descends from heaven, rolls back the stone, sits upon it. Mark's gospel describes him as a young man dressed in white, though as we know, moving our way through Genesis right now, that uh, angels from the Lord routinely appear as men throughout the Old Testament. Arriving on the scene, he appears like lightning, clothes white as snow. And as you can imagine, the guards go completely limp. Like that kind of a response is a kind of response that makes sense to us. They just fall to the ground and tremble. The text tells us like dead men. They view a kind of event that shakes them to the very core. Something they've never seen before or never expected to see. But as we'll see, the reality of the tomb is now that it's completely empty. But yeah, there's, not really, there's not any record of the women seeing these events. It's something of a precursor of what the women now see. Why as they enter the tomb do they find it empty? Here's where we see. Uh, we go from the reality of the tomb to the revelation of the angel. Describing this for us, starting in verse 5. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he, is, he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So the angel speaks, or actually literally, this word means answered. Not in the sense that the women ask him questions, but there's obviously a palpable sense of the confusion and fear that's on the faces of the women. And so he answers them in the midst of this, demonstrating that this is the last thing that they expected to see when arriving to the tomb. And the purpose for the angel's speech, to summarize it in two words, words is a cogent explanation. The angel gives a cogent explanation for the empty tomb. Why? Well, this has been necessary for the last 2,000 years. Because listen, and we'll talk about why I'm, I'm, I'm saying this. But the vast majority of historians agree the empty tomb is actually a historically verifiable fact. Like, as we'll see, okay, there's a reason that I believe that when we talk about Jesus' resurrection on Easter Sunday, we need to talk about the historicity of his death and resurrection, right? There's a reason why we talk about his historicity. There's a reason why that the authors of scripture felt the need to constantly talk about its historicity and talk about the eyewitness accounts and talk about all who had seen him, that not only did a person named Jesus of Nazareth live in history, but that he was indeed crucified by the Romans at the hands of Jewish authorities. And most historians agree that Indeed, he was buried probably in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a very specific name of a uh, Jewish leader in the first century that is unlikely to be contrived, easy to verify, prove false in the first century. And the consensus historically, again, by skeptics and believers alike, is that on the third day, that tomb was indeed found empty by a group of women followers, among whom are Mary Magdalene and this other Mary described in Matthew 28. If an author was attempting 
to sort of contrive a resurrection story in the first century for the desire to amass power, to gain some kind of power from it in order to convince people. Most scholars agree that he simply would not have written that in that historical context that a group of women were the ones who discovered it. The only reason for that to be recorded, most scholars tell us, is if that's what actually happened. This is the same reason that the same scholars say that when Jesus died on the cross, he absolutely said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like you wouldn't make up details that we find in Holy Week that are this difficult to explain that seem to be the founder of the religion himself, the one who they claim to be Christ and Messiah, making cries of defeat. And so the burial accounts of Jesus, along with the empty tomb, they're viewed by historians to be among the earliest and best attested facts about Jesus and and even skeptical scholars like D.H. Van Dalen they write that it would be extremely difficult to object to the empty tomb on historical grounds and so since the very first time the tomb was found empty many different explanations have been offered some say the body was stolen by the followers of Jesus this was actually the reason the Roman guards were posted outside to begin with and we see immediately following in this account, that's what the story is that begins to circulate Jerusalem right away. It is very unlikely, however, it's rejected by most scholars and historians as a reasonable explanation of the details, given a lot of reasons, not the least of which is that not only is the empty tomb verified, but the disciples' belief that Jesus actually physically was raised from the dead, that he appeared to them resurrection, resurrected, as we'll see in the very next section. That they believed that was the case is also a well-attested fact. It's what got Christianity off the ground in the first century AD. They believed to have encountered him to the point of being willing to, to suffer greatly at the hands of both Jewish and Roman authorities. The Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul will both find themselves imprisoned in the same Roman jail, though at different times, and both put to death by Roman authorities for the claim that Jesus was resurrected. All the disciples experience some of them martyrdom, something similar, but at the very least horrible persecution and suffering throughout their lives for these claims. It's not like it gave them some kind of an advantage. There aren't very many historians who would try to claim that the disciples didn't actually believe that they'd seen Jesus risen from the dead. In fact, it was these resurrection appearances that moved them beyond their fear. Still others, so the disciples didn't steal the body. Still others have tried to come up with different ad hoc explanations for the empty tomb. Jesus didn't really die. He actually swooned, fainted after three days of, after Roman crucifixion, then woke up and was apparently fine enough after a couple of ibuprofen to come across to his followers as the Messiah. Another theory is that we have, to, we have a look-alike situation where someone enters Jerusalem during the crucifixion, feels great empathy, for this Jesus character that he can't help see he bears a striking resemblance to. Hides himself, uh, drives nails into his hands and feet, and uh, spears his own side, somehow manages to chase away the Roman guards from the post, roll away the stone, and convincingly come across to even members of Jesus' family, hundreds of Jesus' followers. There's a group hallucination theory where all the disciples, hundreds of them, are all hallucinating at the exact same the exact same thing at the exact same time. Explanation to explanation. 
you simply have so many problems that can't possibly stand even partially. And yet, the story given in all four gospel accounts is cogent. The story that the angel gives us is cogent. That's why it's described by Luke and by Paul in terms of his historicity. If you don't believe me, Luke essentially says, go ask the eyewitnesses. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. It fits with the data. The primary reason for its rejection is simply a philosophical prejudice against the nature of the miraculous. But yet, here it is, again from the angel to the women and to our hearts on Easter morning. Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead, and behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Here we have a cogent explanation for the empty tomb. Christ has risen from the dead. But as we see in our text, and as we'll see in all of the gospel accounts, this simple retelling of what happened by the angel isn't enough to actually quell the fears or doubts of the disciples. It's not enough to cause them to believe that that's what actually happened. Again, for a rumor of resurrection from the dead, to actually be taken seriously by the followers of Jesus, it would need to have eyewitness encounter. It would need to be verified. It would need to be tangible. And we're given this kind of tangible verification on Easter Sunday. Not some kind of squishy, you know, how did Jesus raise from the dead? What kind? Was it physical? Did it need? It was a kind of like in some sense spiritual, the benefits of which I really can't describe to you. Not, this is not the theology of Christianity. We're given this tangible verification on Easter Sunday by the king who's come to save us. As we move now from the revelation given by the angel to the resurrection appearance of Jesus. Read this with me. This is not vague. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee where they will see me. So with a mixture of both fear and joy, not completely knowing what to think, the women run to tell this news to the disciples who, as we see in other accounts, don't just immediately believe what they hear. Okay. When suddenly... As the text tells us, actually the word is behold, but in this context, that word behold has a sense of like, suddenly, surprisingly, right? Jesus met them. Greetings. What I love so much about this Easter account in Matthew is that here you have this very historically abnormal situation, and that's, it's an understatement. Someone's risen from the dead, you know. So here you have this very historically abnormal situation giving this absolutely normal salutation to his followers. Greetings. That's it's just as if he's seeing them any other day. He's risen. He's there. They clasp his feet. They worship him. This word for worship also has the sense of kneeling before him physically. It's the same word that occurs in chapter 8 when a leper kneels before Jesus in right response to him. So they're laying prostrate on the ground, worshiping, clasping his feet. And like the angel in, in verse 5, Jesus stills the women's fears. 
Only he, for obvious reason, appears to be more effective at doing that. He says, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Don't be afraid. Go and tell the disciples. Go and tell my followers. No longer are you cast away from the presence of God. But now you're brothers of mine, reconciled to your father through me. This isn't, some, isn't something that Jesus is only applying to the 11. He's applying it to his followers broadly. In other words, in Genesis 3, God's people, what were they forced to do? Forced to leave his presence in the garden. They have fellowship with the Father in the garden. They're given hope that one day the curse would be reversed, that they'd be reconciled to him again. A promised seed would come who would crush the head of the serpent. But they were forced to leave because of sin. Now Jesus calls his disciples brothers. They've gone from his, those who have set themselves against him as enemy in Genesis 3, to now brothers. As we see, this historical act of resurrection has fundamentally changed everything in at least three ways. First, the resurrection of Jesus brings us into his family by, number one, confirming the substitutionary death that Jesus suffered on the cross on our behalf. This is something where it's a little bit trendy now to kind of glibly pass over that on Easter Sunday. We're not supposed to talk about Good Friday on Easter Sunday. And that's absolute nonsense. We don't find it anywhere in the scriptures. If, if some other sinful human were to say, I'll take all the sin and death upon my shoulders, he simply could not do it because he has his own sin problem that separates him from the Father. His central problem is the same central problem as mine and as yours. There'd be nothing sacrificed because he deserves the same wrath that he's receiving. But Jesus was... Jesus was uniquely positioned to be our substitute. Being fully human and fully divine, God himself come in the flesh to save us. Living the life we should have lived, but that we failed to live. Dying the death that we should have died on our behalf. And we can know that the cross did in fact cover our sin. The cross that we did proclaim on Good Friday. Because on Easter Sunday... This Jesus who claimed to be God and who claimed to come to die for his people and who claimed to save his people from their sin is now standing there, risen from the dead. He's risen. Like if some nut job claimed he was, he was born to save the world from their sin and born to save the world from death, then he died, he'd be forgotten. Eventually he's forgotten, very quickly actually. People have have lived, who've made those kind of claims before. After they die, they're gone. And they're forgotten. But Jesus confirms everything that he claimed was true. Every work that he accomplished was efficacious by rising from the dead. He confirms that he is different from any other person in human history that his people might have initially thought to have been the promised one, the promised seed. Right? Noah sins and dies. Abraham sins and dies. Isaac sins and dies. Jacob maybe. No, sins and dies. Jesus defeats sin at the cross. And he defeats death by raising from the dead. All of God's people are in need of a Savior. Jesus is that Savior. Second, so, the resurrection of Jesus brings us into it 
to his family by confirming the substitutionary death that Jesus suffered on that cross on our behalf. Second, the the resurrection of Jesus brings us into his family. He now calls us brothers by not only dying for our sin and taking our punishment, but actually giving us newness of life, giving us union with him, in which now we stand differently. Our old selves, our former selves, die with Christ, and our new lives with Christ begin by faith in what he has done so that the believer in Jesus is the one who can rightly claim in the first century, right away, in the first century, I've been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Okay, Paul, don't talk about Good Friday on Easter Sunday, right? This is, what ha- this is what baptism actually signifies, is we were able to experience the joy of another baptism just a few weeks ago. Our old selves, our former way of life, our former rejection of God, dying. Setting ourselves against him, it's buried with Christ. And we're then raised to him with newness of life in the power of the Spirit, the power of the resurrection. This is why Paul writes in Romans 6, alongside of the passage that we had in our liturgy this morning. He says, For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set freed from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. God is able to call these disciples now his family, to bring them into his family, because now by his resurrection power, they have not only the death of their former old selves, but they have newness of life in him. They have union with him. Changes everything. Third, the resurrection of Jesus brings us into his family in demonstrating a future hope that we have in his very resurrection. By doing this, he gives us our future hope. Jesus declared to Mary and Martha as they mourned the death of their brother Lazarus, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though, yet he, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. We live in a time in which there's so much fear of death. So much fear of physical death. And that fear, even for Christians, can often often keep us from proclaiming effectively the very reason that we have to dispel our fears. Death is horrific. Death is tragic. There's something far worse to fear than physical death. Separation from God eternally. And yet that's... The very thing that Christ came 
to save us from. And we have salvation in him. As one commentator notes, Jesus' concern is to divert Martha's focus from an abstract belief in what takes place on the last day to a personalized belief in him who alone can provide it. Just as he not only gives the bread from heaven, but is himself the bread of life, so he not only raises the dead on the last day, but is himself the resurrection and the life. There is neither resurrection nor eternal life outside of him. In other words, listen. Rather than some vague hope that maybe in some kind of way there's going to be life after death for those who belong to Jesus in some, again, some kind of way that isn't very tangible or verifiable. Listen, no, rather than that, because of who Jesus is and what he came to do for his people, we have certain future that is declared to our hearts for strength and comfort now. This is why we talk so often and why the authors of Scripture undeniably talk so often about a historical, eyewitness, physical, tangible resurrection, not just some kind of like ambiguous, mysterious jargon surrounding the resurrection. This is why we we don't have ambiguity in Jesus in terms of the promises of future resurrection life for his people. And the reason is because of who he is and what he has done. Not because of who we are, not because of anything about us. The Apostle Paul calls Jesus' resurrection the first fruits in 1 Corinthians 15. In other words, as his brothers, one day we will be receiving the resurrection that he receives not because of us or our work but because of him and his work he got what we deserved on good friday so that we could get what he deserved on easter sunday he bore the wrath of god on good friday that we might enter into the fellowship of god on easter sunday with him we have a certain future hope in christ because of the resurrection And so, Gospel Life Church, the promised seed, Genesis 3.15, he has come. Though the serpent bruised his heel at the cross, he crushed the head of the serpent, both at that cross and at his resurrection, making a way for those who were cast out of the garden to be reconciled back to him again, and one day make this perfect. So we proclaim this to one another in our liturgy at the the table.